Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special returning guest, longtime friend, Megan O'Connor. Megan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. So, Megan, you've just accepted a new role at Chegg. Why don't you uh, explain the new role and, and why you're so excited about it? I am super fired up about it. So this is my third week uh, joining the team at Chegg to lead strategic partnerships and specifically build out what they've already started with Chegg skills. And so most people know Chegg as the business who supports a student through traditional college, whether that be textbooks, which I definitely got my textbooks from Chegg back in the day, and or support with homework, tutoring, what have you. Um, But the exciting thing is about two years ago, they acquired a company called Thinkful, which is a skills-based learning program across lots of tech-first careers. And Chegg, over the next couple of years, is going to make a lot of bets in that space and expand their footprint in skills-based learning. And I'm there to make sure that we can get students into these great educational programs and also get them connected to amazing jobs after they graduate. That's awesome. And, and and you've been, you know, you started at tech company before this, you've, you've been in the space for a long time, going back to pencils, of, your time, pencils of promise, especially in the last year, you've done a lot of research just around making market maps, just understanding the opportunities. I mean, contextualize Chegg within that market map in terms of where do they sit? And it's interesting because they, they've pivoted over time. So maybe you can give, you know, even some deeper backstory of, of how they've evolved with how the market has evolved. Yes, I think you did a really good job of um, describing how nerdy my last year has been, which has been sitting researching the space after Clark was acquired. So yeah, there's a couple different ways to think about Chegg. I mean, first and foremost, it started as a textbook rental company. And we all felt that pain when we were going through college, like why in the world are these books so expensive? But over time, it one, went from a private company to a public company. And two, it became a company that acquired other companies. And then essentially became the one-stop shop for students who are going through a college experience, meaning any support that you need in order to be a successful college student, check out your back. And so when you think about the ecosystem of higher ed, you know, you see a lot of silos in terms of products, whether it be access to content, access to assessments, access to tutors. Chegg was the first company really to say, we're going to own the whole ecosystem and we're going to support you through your full learner journey. Then very smartly, they noticed that the college student in America was changing. And this is something that you and I have talked about quite a bit. You know, now the average age of a college student in America is 25, not 18 graduating from high school. They're juggling work and or parenting and or other life commitments with their higher ed education. And they're focused more than anything on getting their first job and not necessarily a four-year liberal arts experience. And so Chegg has expanded to also support this true college student, one that's looking to get the skills they need for the job they want. And that's what's really exciting about all the Thinkful courses that students can now take through Chegg, whether it be, how do I become a data scientist? How do I become an engineer? How do I get a really phenomenal job in marketing? And right now, you know, you see kind of the boot camp alternative higher ed space exploding because more than ever, 
the world is thinking, how do I get into you know, new economy jobs? And Chegg has expanded their vision of what a student is for their set of products and really says like, hey, you're going to be a lifelong learner. Like adult learners isn't just a market. It's what the whole market is going to be in any second now, because people realize you've got to be learning your whole life in order to stay gainfully employed. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because just to double click on, on your note that the average college student is is, is a lot older than, than mm-hmm. what it used to be. But my belief is that, you know, 18 year olds don't have a ton of sort of you know, they're probably going to do whatever, what they're pressured to do. They don't have a, you know, a ton of knowledge about the world relative to people who are a decade older and people who are a decade older are, are, are more shopping than just sort of going with, with the motions relative to, or going with what the herd is doing. And so you'd think that they'd be more selective. I, I it makes me think that, co- that, that college is for that group of people is less of a sure bet as the, the advantage of, of things or as the rise of boot camps and, and thinkful and other cohort based, you know, course programs uh, just sort of pr- prove more value o- o- over time. I, is that where your head is at too? Or how, how would you respond to that? I would say that you're totally correct. And here's what's interesting about the higher ed space. Right now, 55% of students that start a traditional four-year university right out of high school don't think they're going to finish. It's like, what are they doing there if they don't think they're going to finish? And over 43% of students who graduate from higher ed, like a traditional four-year university, end up in a first job that didn't even require a college degree. So uh, what we've seen in, you know, the last year I've been in EIR at Kaplan and really narrow focused on what is this higher ed journey that students are experiencing. And candidly, up until now, up until the pandemic, kind of general mindset has been, oh, I do really well in high school. I crush this SAT by getting a good score. And then I go to college and then they just kind of stop planning from there and assume, well, like, oh, if I go to a four-year university, that's going to be okay. That's all I have to have figured out. But what we started to see, and this trend happened pre-pandemic, but really the light shined on it during the pandemic, which is hey, that's not the case. Four-year university is not everything you need to just enter into the workforce. And then two, because so much of the world was financially impacted by COVID and nobody was having a great time remote learning, you know, this higher ed consumer became a conscious consumer. They started to actually look at the ROI of what the heck am I doing with all this money I'm putting towards higher ed? And so one of the phrases that CEO Acheg always says that I love so much is like learning to earning. And that's, the mindset that is going to be adopted now as it relates to this space and this consumer group. Yeah. And so if you had to sort of get predict, you know, a, a few years out right now, higher education is, is, is a bundle of many things, you know, some of the biggest things of which are bundles are sort of career training and, you know, liberal arts, you know, and then also like coming of age social, do you think they're going to, the first thing that's going to be unbundled or the biggest thing to be unbundled is all the career uh, track stuff. Do you think they'll just seed that territory? Cause they're, they're, they're not doing a good job now lots of other competitors are, are emerging. Is it that they're going to do a better job and, and compete? Or is it that they're just going to either seed it voluntarily or involuntarily to, to others? Yeah, I mean, the first things that were unbundled were, as you're talking about, kind of these like digital first career tracks. So whether it be something in engineering, you know, we talked about data science, program and product management have been uh, analogous tracks as well. Like those were the first ones. And the reason being that employers were willing to hire people who had graduated from something they hadn't heard of before. And for the first time ever, we started to assess individuals about, do you just really have the tangible skills to do the job versus where did you come from? So that got unbundled first and foremost. 
The other thing that you're seeing get unbundled quite a bit right now is this, like, how do you enter the real world? So what historically within a college or university was the idea of like a guidance counselor, career services, as you said, that is like there's full products, standalone products that students now can go through. You know, there's one called like real world playbook. There's lots of other ones that essentially are finishing school for the real world. Everything from how do you interview? How do you network? How do you get your LinkedIn profile up and running to how do you go about making smart decisions in order to enter the workforce? So that got unbundled pretty quickly as well. I think what you're going to see next, and this is kind of a big prediction I had early in the pandemic, is if more and more students are going to start to acquire credentials and courses from a couple of different places, meaning they're taking, you know, perhaps a coding program online, and they're going to community college to get general ed, and then they're also doing Coursera and something else that they have interest in, you know, something that I think is going to be unbundled as well as the college degree. I don't think it's going to come just in this one size, shape or form. It instead is going to be this culmination of a lot of different things. And so you've started to see platforms uh, pop up like Credly, for example, who've just said, here's all the different things that I have done over the last couple of years that show who I am as an educated individual. Um, yeah. First, it's like, here's my diploma from so-and-so. Well, do follow questions for that. One is, are sort of the incumbents going to adapt to, to that and, and and change the way that they think about their degree? Or are these going to be like either newer accredited or unaccredited versions? And 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 what, like, if you give us a case study of a, like, what, what could that, an example, I should say, what, what could that look like? So I would say uh, the incumbents in the traditional higher ed space kind of fall into three categories. They fall into ones that are like, yeah, they're hip with it. And they're starting to make a lot of changes. ASU, Southern New Hampshire University, Purdue Global, these are all really smart schools who have said, oh, you know, we're going to show that you can have a somewhat traditional college experience, but you can also get access to, you know, like Shag has a partnership with ASU, for example, where you can get access to their incredible programs in these career specific tracks. And they have made it a much more adaptable for the average day learner. The next category is like the top 50 universities. And I don't see those incumbents changing anytime soon. Um, I do think it's going to become kind of like a barbell in terms of what we're seeing in universities and the top 50 will continue to hold their market share. But everybody in the middle who's like an expensive school, which is like probably great quality, but doesn't necessarily have a strong connection towards uh, employment post-graduation, those are going to kind of fall by the wayside for sure. And then, you know, when you think about those three groups, it definitely still leaves like other types of universities that we've yet to really see what's going to happen to them. And I think the community college space is the the example of that. And so what I mean by that is traditionally in a down economy, you see everybody flush the community college within their community, but we didn't see that happen during the pandemic. And I think it's because it wasn't a traditional recession as much as it was like a sudden jolt of like complete uh, change. Obviously it came with it huge financial implications, but yeah, I think that is the space that still remains to be unseen. To answer your question in terms of examples, I think, more and more universities are joining the ASU track in that they're making it a lot more flexible for you to get access to their credentials and transfer your credentials and um, into that program. And I think that's the kind of thing we'll see a lot more. Yeah, it is interesting. If you think about unbundling the, the credential and I'm sort of you know riffing a little bit here, but a few things that w- would comprise it for me is one sort of 
you know, domain ex- ex- expertise in a certain, you know, subject um, mm-hmm. that, or, or, or a certain skill. And, and we saw like things like GitHub or Behance, the sort of areas where you can show your work, are sort of, you know, the 1.0 version of that. Then yep. there's sort of, I guess, like general raw horsepower I, I, IQ, whatever sort of metric you, you want to associate with it. And my understanding is that we've sort of, it became whatever you, word you want to use, politically incorrect, not, not popular to for companies to, to issue IQ tests. And so we sort of outsourced that to the universities via like, SATs and, and other sort of combination. Right. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is sort of like uh, conscientiousness or really just like follow through rigor and, you know, getting into a Harvard or getting into a Goldman Sachs or like it, or a consultant or what McKinsey, it does just at the very least demonstrate a level of rigor and effort and ability to, you know, work within a system. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and college has, has provided at least the I, the raw horsepower and the um, you know conscientiousness, and so I I wonder if it'll be some combination of GitHub plus Behance plus like better sort of aptitude tests that become pl- palatable plus like extensive references or better referencing mm-hmm. platforms such that you can really get a sense for you know wh- how this person is has operated in, in different ecosystems or, or plus the rise of like new you know like things like. What what Ondek is trying to do, like Y Combinator for for X, uh, you know, yeah. YC for startups has has really sort of been a gold standard for you know it being a program that when people get in, it's a it's a strong signal, it's a strong network, it's easily referenceable, and people trust that that credential more so than they do you know a Stanford GSB or whatever for startups. And you could imagine that for uh, for founders, I should say, you can imagine that for lots of other different uh, fields or subfields. Yeah, I mean, I think if you kind of like work backwards from what you just said, like a Stanford MBA graduate, what do you think is rolled up all into that? You think, like you said, really great rigor, right? So SAT scores, uh, GPA, you think critical thinking. I think that's kind of how I would define the last piece, like ability to be a smart uh, member of society, can work in diverse teams, has the ability to think through complex problems aside from just having like this like super tangible skill yeah. and then like domain expertise. And those are the, the different things that I think would roll up um, into a university. But I think the last piece is also network because yeah. it's implied by saying I am a graduate of a lot of the universities in the US that it shows like I'm going to do well throughout life because I have access to this elite network of other people who are doing great in their careers. And whether I do business with them, I recruit from them, I get jobs from them, that is sort of implied. And as we're unbundling the university, we're also then unbundling, you know, their ability to have a network. And so you've seen it happen in other pockets. Like let's talk like early tech, for example, like networks do happen, But I think what we're going to see happen, because it's going to have to exist across all different fields of work, is a sort of like new, maybe it's a membership community, maybe it is a areas of interest community, but there's going to be a different way that college age students, one, socialize, and but two, create alliances with one another. So that way they can work and hire and flourish in the actual working economy together. And so, I don't know, I think that's a piece that is still, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to build right there, right now. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my understanding, very limited understanding of sort of like early education was that guilds were really popular. Guilds of like, you know, different positions or different fields or diff- different areas of expertise. And we're sort of seeing a, 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 a of like digital guilds, uh, you know, yeah. people you could find, you know, 
if you're a whatever, you could find the same, you know, position just way easier on the internet and people who are your peers, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So excited for, for more of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and I'd be curious what you think about it, is, you know, the places where you have to get credentialed, meaning like you're going to be a CPA or you're going to work in law or something like that. There hasn't been this like mass um, influx of more fields of work where you have to be credentialed. And so I've been also thinking about like, do credentials stay with those kind of like long, old school legacy fields of work? Or is there going to be this other, you know, rise of credentials in new forms of work? Because when you're credentialed with that comes community, with that comes network, with that even sometimes comes a union. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. Yeah, not only do they not require the old um, stuff that you mentioned, sort of legacy, you know, training programs, they're not show your work space in the same way. Like GitHub and Behance are, are, are you know, are, you know, for designers and engineers, like at OnDeck, we're 80 people now. Most of them are neither show your work, nor are they fields in which you could have trained in the last four years. Like they're all new kind of, we're breaking ground here. <laughs> and so they're sort of nebulous. And yet we need, you know, we have a short period of time and we need to analyze, you know, whether certain people are the right roles. And so we're actually asking ourselves like what really matters. And a lot of it is referencing. Um, and, and so I, I, this is why my, if, if GitHub, GitHub, sorry, um, if GitHub and Behance are credentials 1.0, my dream for the future is, is peer to peer credentials where if you told me, Hey, here are the best people I've ever worked with, uh, just brought, like put them in any sort of like, you know, broad business hire, because we're doing a lot of business hires, and and they'd absolutely crush it. I would value that because we have a lot of trust more so than a Harvard degree. And yet it's inconvenient for me to get that list from you. And it's you plus like 50 others plus 100 others who, who mm-hmm. I trust who I've worked with. And that that could be my next, you know, few hundred hires. And and so that yeah. data is, is just missing. And I feel like it will become legible will become on the internet at some point. And um, yeah, so that, 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 that's one thing I think about when I think about credentials. You know, I love that. And I think that it makes sense, right? Because in a, like a paper prototype way, I'm already doing that. When I was hiring for engineers or a new designer at Clark, right? Like I have like a top 50 like friends in tech that I would reach out to first and be like, hey, I'm making this hire. Like who are the people I need to meet? And yeah. I totally agree with you. Like I would trust your recommendation over anyone else uh, or uh, that it came through some sort of like you know, funnel from a recruiting service like hired, et cetera. I'd be like, I definitely would see what my network would want to say. What's funny is I think so often about how like LinkedIn is actually sitting on the infrastructure that could be exactly this, right? Like there's the endorsement feature on LinkedIn. That's technically probably what it's supposed to do, which is say like, hey, if I believe somebody is kick-ass at a certain skill uh, or role, or I love working with them, like, here's where I would show it. Like, you can't necessarily like, query that data. You can't say, of oh, people yeah. I know who has endorsed them, uh, who have endorsed people for this thing that I'm hiring for. I think about that a lot with LinkedIn, that they're actually sitting on the infrastructure to build what we really need in the hiring yeah. and education space. The other thing, you know, when we talk to different employers and all the different research that I've actually been doing lately, one thing that they say in terms of this new future way of education is that the thing that worries them is that they don't necessarily hire people or have the opportunity to hire people that have a lot of work experience, right? Like you go through these boot camp programs, you graduate, you've obviously got a certificate of completion that you've done this amazing thing in terms of getting job ready to learn tangible skills. 
But it's still like the way that you really de-risk a hire is by them on their resume saying, I've actually worked in this field of work before. I've been inside of another company that's similar to yours. And so, you know, to kind of go back to your earlier question, I think that there's also going to be some sort of credentialing around like if I've done an internship or an apprenticeship or like number of hours on the job, essentially, for lack of a better phrase, because that really is what a hiring manager internally at a company is looking for. You know, does this person know how to also do work? Yeah. You know, Lambda Fellows, for example, is this new sort of apprenticeship program where I think they spend a month or something and if they like them, they keep them. But Mm -hmm. yeah, things that can shorten or, or decrease the friction of getting these, you know, even mini experiences that give some signal as to well, some knowledge and, and some signal as to whether, Hey, you know, this person, uh, we, we should hire them. Uh, I'd be excited about yeah. the one thing we, we sort of learned about building the credential platform that I was talking about the peer to peer credential platform. And this is the challenge that LinkedIn has is sort of like, what's the incentive for people to do it, let alone incentive for people to be honest when doing it. And mm-hmm. our conclusion is that one among those ways is if they're actually applying to something. And if you think about it, this is this is references and recommendation letters, right? Universities and other institutions do this all the time and people do references all, all day long. None of it is codified or, or very very few of it is codified. And we're always like, you know, how many times have, as I say, have you or I been referenced? Probably hundreds or thousands of times. And, and that data, you know, we're just sort of reinventing the wheel. Whereas... If people, so what we're hoping to do is when people apply to OnDeck and you know tens of thousands of people apply apply a month with the people's permission to get that uh, data and and that's how we populate the sort of peer to peer credential platform and and hopefully other people will will do the same. But I do take your point more broadly that yeah, I wonder if LinkedIn will be looking back at LinkedIn a decade from now and say that was the Craigslist of education or that was the Craigslist of, <laughs> of human capital or human mobility, social mobility. Yeah, let's just say I would love to talk to LinkedIn whenever they are available to do so, because I think they're <laughs> the sleeper on a lot of critical features and they have a lot of data that would be great for the rest of the education community. Anything you want to mention, like any other ideas related to what LinkedIn should or could do with that data? Okay, so this is one of my favorite things in terms of like providing like broader access to certain jobs in fields of education. What you'll see happen is typically students um, aspire to be a job when they're in high school um, that's aligned with like the choral community that they came from, right? So like if nobody they knew growing up was an engineer, no one's like no neighbor, no friend's dad or mom had that kind of job, they don't know what it one, they don't aspire to be it. And two, they don't have the information of how do I go about getting that job? Like, what are the steps I take to go enter into that workforce? And so the answer is that LinkedIn has all that data. So let's imagine that you are a top engineer at a really incredible company. LinkedIn has all the information of like, well, what kind of job did you have before that? And what skills did you learn at that job? And what school did you go to? Or what boot camp did you have? And what are the different steps that you took to get there? Like if we could open source all of that data, all that pathway data, more people in, would be able to have the information of like, how do I become this thing that I want to be? And then people would stretch beyond, you know, the jobs within their existing community. So I think in terms of like adding diversity to the workforce, helping provide more access at the very least, it's open sourcing the data of how do the people and jobs exist today get there. That's step one. Yeah. And I think more and more I'm thinking about this endorsement feature now that you talked about it, because that is the barrier for most people in terms of getting the job they want, which is work experience. So if you could have individuals, 
you know, letters of recommendation that show you know how to do certain things um, and it be a peer validated versus like a I passed it test validated. I think that could also go a long way for increasing diversity and employment. Yeah, those are great points. So I want to close out the higher education conversation by sort of uh, asking a couple of broad questions. Feel free to answer anyone you'd like. One is if you were the president of a university and that university could be Harvard, it could be, you know, some mid-tier school, it could be a third-tier school, community college, pick any, what, what would you do differently or what would you add? And another variation of that question is, or a different question is, if we had, you know, a few hundred million dollars or a billion dollars uh, and we're starting a new university from scratch, what are some things that we would make sure to to put in it that we, we haven't yet yet discussed? What a fun question. Okay. So if I were the head of a university and I wanted to get real radical, I think what I would do is I'd make our North Star metric number of graduates into jobs post-graduation and making that a real quick turnaround. And then also retention of that graduate at said company. And what that would mean is that you would have to open up the dialogue between universities and the major employers um, in any given area in terms of like, what, where is future innovation going? How do we educate so people understand how to staff that future innovation? And then how can we create curriculum that is like always timely at our university? Meaning yeah. that students are graduating with cutting edge skills to enter the workforce. And I do believe that that includes a little bit, and I've talked about this before, of like a corporate sponsored university. But I do believe that, that means like corporations and educational institutions deciding like it's a shared responsibility for getting somebody out of whatever their higher ed path is. And even if that's only like a two week boot camp into their first job and like being successful at that job, that educational path isn't clean cut at graduation. It's actually a gradual transition across both of them. So I think that's one thing that I would do. And I would definitely be good friends with employers and create a great advisory council of the fastest growing employers for that exact career pathway. If I were to create a brand new university today, it's an interesting question. I think uh, one of the things that I would do is I would look back at the vocational schools and the trade schools and one, you know this, I've done a lot of research about why they went out of vogue and that's a blog post coming from me soon. But I would really look at that model and I would think through how do I create a university that resembles what trade schools have looked like, which is how do you get into an ecosystem that is really like learn as you go, hands on the job, hours of whether it be training or apprenticeship, et cetera. And then you're able to unlock, you know, different types of credentials, which equal more money, the more experience you gain doing that job. Um, and I think that the trade model that we've used for like becoming a plumber or an electrician could actually be applied to a lot more verticals of work. Yeah. You could imagine a, a sort of pay for what you use model that is instead of over four years, it's over, you know, someone's lifetime. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, on a subscription basis, you're subscribing to content, you're subscribing to the network. And so, yeah, instead of paying, you know, quarter million dollars over, you know, four years or whatever it is, maybe you pay a fraction of that. I don't know, but it's over, you know, 30 years and you pay more for what you use. And, and, and then maybe also like, I wonder if the sort of, you know, you go to college and then when you get rich, you donate back if that business model is going to last, you know, a few decades out in the future as sort of the romanticism of college diminishes relative to other alternatives. And so I wonder if the, the better business model is to, you know, whether it's ISA or just be long-term aligned with their students. So it could be ISAs, it could be, you know, investing in people's companies when, when they break out. 
it could, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, just more commercialization of, of some of the research and some of the science um, stuff that will then go back into feeding, you know, supporting more, more, more research and, and some of the stuff that's not profitable or, or, or yeah, it doesn't, you know, is, is learning for its own sake. But I'd sort of, yeah, I'd rethink the, the, the business model because I, I don't know how many decades it, it has left um, with yeah. that. I think you make a great point that like the, the endowment at the average university in the U S is like definitely at risk. People aren't feeling the same like alumni affiliation and desire to give back because they're not currently in the economy being like, Oh yeah, I got exactly what I needed from that university. (laughs) Yeah. They're, you know, they're like in a ton of debt or or, or many, Mm -hmm. many, many people are. Okay. Let's transition into another space. You've gone deep on during the past year in a space that has, has really gotten a lot of momentum. Uh, which is homeschool, and, and you recently had uh, Ryan Delk from Primer on, on, on uh, to, uh, to on your newsletter to, to talk about it, and you guys did a great great episode together. Where is homeschool right now, or are we surprised with how it's how it's gone relative to when the pandemic started? Why don't you sort of give a, a state of the union where you see things going? Yeah, so homeschool, as you guys know, is before the pandemic was certainly something that only the top one percent of families really had the opportunity to take part in because it obviously requires a lot of oversight from parents and oftentimes comes with staffing of tutors. And it means that obviously like both parents, for example, don't need to be working uh, during the day. One of them can be there and or they're financing, like I said, some private tutors to do said homeschooling. During the pandemic, all parents everywhere suddenly became homeschoolers. So I think the cool thing with that is everybody finally saw how hard it is to be a teacher. A lot of parents have an appreciation for the the craft of teaching, I think, in a way that they didn't have before. But we saw with it the rise of like very small homeschooling pods. And probably everybody read about the term pod in the New York Times over the course of the last year. But those were people who were homeschooling their kids in very small groups and often with the help of a tutor. A couple of things that I think will stick post-pandemic in the homeschooling market is that I think parents will continue to get their kids together in small groups. And I think that those will no longer be around all of their general ed, um, because at the end of the day, like physical school is still the largest babysitter slash caregiver in the world. But these ideas that like you could get together in small groups and learn something that is maybe of interest to you and is something that you have, you know, an appetite for as a student that's not in your core curriculum. That's where I think there's going to be a lot of homeschooling. And I say that with air quotes legs. People love Montessori school because it's, you know, um, inquisitive. Students get to use their own imagination and that kind of takes them as a guide of what they're going to learn. And you learn through play and you learn by like really leaning into your interests. Again, it's a privilege to be able to go to Montessori school. But if you wanted to kind of apply that methodology to a student who might go to public school from, let's say, like nine to three, what they can do is enter into the homeschooling market after school, just specifically related to their like individual areas of interest, whether it be robotics or something else like that. Yeah, that, that, that's really fascinating. I mean, talk about how the the role of the parent as as sort of consumer uh, has changed and how you expect it to to evolve or continue to change in a post pandemic world. Um, I think before the pandemic, parents were buying educational tools. One, if their kids were super intrinsically motivated to use one. So like Quizlet's a great example of that. It spread like wildfire, not because parents were forcing their kids to use it, but because like they were looking down and their kids were like, I love this Quizlet game. Can I have more? And parents were like, yeah, sure. You can definitely keep doing educational programming instead of like watching 
TV or playing video games. So that's how they used to really opt into the market. I think now that parents realize that they have to participate for as long as remote schooling is going to last and beyond, I think parents are going to be looking for tools that can really just keep reinforcing what their students' daytime classroom teacher is trying to do. What I mean by that is that you know, it was difficult for parents to be in a position where they would get the lessons from the teacher, maybe set up their kid in front of the live Zoom. And then they knew they had to supplement that with more things, but they wouldn't know exactly where they were in in terms of like understanding of algebra. You can't just download like algebra for dummies and give it to your kid. So parents finding tools that are very closely aligned with the curriculum that their teacher, their student's teacher is actively teaching is going to be mission critical. Otherwise, parents are finding that they're going to just have to fill too much of the gap. I also think that parents are going to, as the consumer group, really be looking for this like cohort-based learning um, experience, either online or in person, simply because of the time. Like They can't devote that level of time of oversight to their kids anymore. They have to go back to work. They have to be left alone for longer periods of time. So I think parents will be willing to spend a larger amount of their disposable income on things like I was just talking about, like access to after-school programming, pods, et cetera. Is it that parents in China spend a lot more of their percentage on, uh, or the income on, yeah. Significantly more. Yeah. Or others only going to, to follow? I think so. I think so. I definitely think it's going to happen here because of how the education remote learning crisis really ended up becoming a workforce crisis. So I think that's our really only solution out of it. Yeah. What other trends have we have we not yet discussed that mm-hmm. accelerated the pandemic that will uh, you know stay versus go back to normal uh, afterwards? Ones that'll stay is I think that the average high school and college student will go about getting college credit by the cheapest way, however possible. Like they are, like I said, really conscious consumers now and colleges or what have you can't stop them from saying, Hey, I'm actually going to get this from an online program or a cheaper thing, or I'm going to take this, you know, outlier class that happens to have college credit for it. And universities are going to be forced to accept those credentials if they want to keep their employment numbers. That's definitely one trend that I think is going to stick Things like out-school, that's a trend that like blew up during the pandemic that will 100% stick afterwards. And that's like online cohort-based learning, kind of extracurricular, started in the homeschool market, but it's definitely going to last beyond just now. And I think that all students will now learn in a remote setting coupled with an in-person setting as well. Um, In the same way, we're going to work totally differently. Like, I don't know about you, I'm not going to go back to an office five days a week. Um, so teachers having to figure out how to juggle some students who they're in person with at the same time, some students that they're remotely educating is a trend that I think lasts forever. It's segueing a little bit. If you were running a masterclass, right. And so they, they, you know, create this incredible content, totally unique. Would you also try to go full stack and start offering sort of, you know, either cohort based courses or, or, or trying to get some of the, the network component as well? Or would you just focus on, you know, what, what masterclass is incredible at? What would you do if you were running that business? If I was running masterclass, I would have all of the individuals who are super successful on there open sourcing information of here's how the hell I got here. Here's exactly the bets I've made with my education, with my career, how I networked, who I made alliances with, where I had my internships. So I would actually ask them to do what LinkedIn is not. And then what I would instead say to your point is I think Outlier is the company that I would try to say 
like see if you can blend into cohort-based learning, see if you can tackle a lot more different um, subjects than just the ones that you do. Because I think they're meeting students where they're at in a really beautiful way by having like high production value, really incredibly engaging content. And, you know, the general ed that students have to have in order to go into the college space. Um, and I think there's some legs there. I think that they could expand oh. and create a much more holistic educational experience. And for those unfamiliar, can you spell the difference between a master class and outlier? Classes when like a somebody who is an expert, best in class at one thing, whether it be acting, directing, cooking, economics, you know, teaches you that subject. And everyone is there because they're famous for doing that. Whereas Outlier is similarly beautifully shot, but it is in a movie-like way, them teaching you something like Psychology 101. Yeah, no, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to segue into education and employment. And your your pet idea that, that we spoke about uh, uh, in the last episode that I really liked too, was sort of this corporate-sponsored education or sort of white label, you know, Facebook you, Walmart you. Sure you know, et cetera, to really just decrease friction in, in that pipeline from education to, to employment. Where are we? Has, has any momentum happened on that? Do, are we still as excited about, about that idea? And, and what's it going to take for, for that to work? Yes, I am still very excited by that idea. A couple things are going to have to happen to make that work now that I understand it better. At the end of the day, People who need access to jobs right out of school most are the same groups of individuals who don't necessarily have access to any kind of funding, right? So if there is going to be a fee for this corporate-sponsored university and needs to come with it like an income share agreement or some sort of like amazing scholarship program, or even it's free, and that's because the corporation is doing it as part of their ability to have a really great pipeline of entry-level candidates. But like thinking about the financial access piece is what needs to be true there as step one. And, you know, I definitely think that the corporate sponsor university works for big brands that people really care about, like the Facebooks, the Googles, et cetera, of the world. And it also works if somebody is tied to living in a certain location and like there's a biggest game in town and you want to work for that big stable employer. Where I think it doesn't work is where people have a lot of choice in terms of where they could work. And so you don't want to get the Amazon degree if you know you someday want to move from a town that has an Amazon or leave just that company generally. So I'm thinking through a third company, which basically matches the educational skills from each company. And like, you can have the ability to match like, you know, Amazon one equals Home Depot, you know, 1.2. And you can essentially uh, know how you could transfer into other jobs if you do end up going to a white labeled university. That's exciting. I'm excited to see uh, entrepreneurs uh, pursuing it. Maybe gearing towards closing here, any what, what what have we not talked about in terms of what, what we're excited about the the future of edtech or any predictions upcoming or or, or things that we uh, that we want to cover? It's a cool question. Um, you know, I think the role professors and teachers is going to change a lot, and I think that um, now more than ever we're thinking about how to get educators the tools they need to actually do their job. So one thing I'm excited about is like the elevation of the teacher. And people are really building for them in mind, not just for student outcomes in mind. So that's one thing I'm super fired up about. And honestly, I think that it's kind of a, a way back to some of the older ways of thinking around education, which is, you know, go to college if you really need it. Don't go if you don't. And so I'm excited to see this like very elite 
smart, hardworking, gainfully employed student in America who didn't go to college. And for us to see that, like, they learned the things they needed from a really diverse set of places. Yeah, I love that. And, and let's spend a minute or two on the professor thing because and, and teacher thing, because one angle I have on it is I, uh, I want to shout out this, this guy on the Internet, Justin Murphy, who has this company called Indie Thinkers. And he was a professor uh, at a college who was pretty miserable because he had to do a lot of things that he didn't want to do as being a professor. And he also didn't feel that he had the academic freedom. He didn't want to work in this bureaucratic institution. And so he left and he's basically doing um, it on his own. And so he's sort of, you know, creating his own research and charging for it via, you know, Substack or Patreon or whatever, whatever he's using. And then he's also teaching. Um, and so, uh, so he basically has his own cohort based course. He says, I'm going to teach about this obscure philosopher and, uh, you know, pe- because of the audience he's built for, through his research and, and through social, he gets people from all over the world who, who apply. And what he's also done now is he's, he's gotten other professors who are unhappy with, uh, with their setup and who they just want to teach or they, they just want to have more flexibility or teach the things that they want to teach. And he's saying, Hey, come with me. I'll create a curriculum or I'll, I'll create all the infrastructure so that you could just focus on, on teaching. And mm-hmm. now these professors have this D2C audience that, you know, didn't have to go to the university and, and that part is being unbundled. And, and that's really interesting to me. I think it is really interesting. I mean, I learned this with Clark too, right? Like teachers are great at educating, bad at running a business. Like they shouldn't have to be good at performance marketing in order to become a famous teacher online. You know, they should be really good at the thing that they do, the methodology that they use and the way that they educate kids. So I like that a lot. Yeah, no, I think that that's super cool. I think the one thing to just remember is like, I think teachers more than anyone, we should be focusing on like them thinking through how do I teach kids new economy skills, you know, critical thinking, the things they need to learn and less worried about like, how do I get more Twitter followers? Yeah, no, totally. And so say more about that. So like, what is that? What does the elevation of the teacher look like? How do you expect that to to play out? Or how do we hope that 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 plays out? I haven't thought too much about this, but if I were to make a guess, I would think, you know, the creator economy, which is awesome in terms of the ways in which teachers can put things up on anything from Teachable to YouTube uh, and become a star. There's two metrics there, right? They're looking for engagement and then they're looking for student outcome. But if like you're teaching on YouTube, you really can only look at engagement. You can't look, did I change anything in the student's life? Did, was there an educational outcome? So the only time I get worried is like when there is too much of an emphasis on the engagement versus did the student learn? And so I think what you're just talking about, like kind of takes the engagement piece and puts that responsibility on somebody else and allows the teacher to really focus on like, is this quality content that is going to create great cognitive learning? Yeah, that's a great place to, to, to wrap on. My guest today has been Megan O'Connor. Megan, congrats on, on, on the new role at Chegg. And uh, any last plugs for people who are building certain things and should should reach out to you or what last we have a great newsletter. What, what, what last plugs do you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can check out my newsletter on Substack. It's just my name, Megan O'Connor. Um, and also I'd love to meet anybody who is really thinking through like what is the employer's responsibility as it relates to educating today's workforce. So if you're building in that space, whether you be inside a big company or doing it at a startup, I would love to talk to you. So please find me. Um, my Twitter is at Megan M. O'Connor. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, Megan. It's been a great episode. Thank you. you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.